Well, good morning, EWG. Such a privilege to get to be with you this morning. I almost feel like we should pray after that last song. Let me pray real quick. Lord, we just want to come to you this morning acknowledging that we're here through Christ, that you have brought us here, that you have redeemed us, you have saved us, you have given us new life through your Son. Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we come to your word. Give us ears to hear, hearts that are soft, hearts that are tender. Lord, help us learn from you as our shepherd, as our redeemer. Lord, take away words from my mouth that you don't want me to speak. Give me your words. I pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Well, it's been a little while since I've gotten the chance to be here with you. And as Lauren mentioned, a few things have happened in my life. Um, I, we just celebrated our nine-month anniversary of being married. And I think I have a picture here. There is our, our, our wedding. We had a little COVID wedding in a friend's backyard. I was really excited, actually, to be able to have a COVID wedding because I wanted a small wedding. And before COVID... That wasn't really possible. I mean, it was, but most people had bigger weddings. And then COVID, I was like, I get to have a small wedding and say it's COVID. Um, so we did. We had a nice wedding um, in, in our friend's backyard in Granada Hills. So there's a little picture of it. Um, my husband is Jack. I'm still in the newlywed stage. Um, I don't know how long it's supposed to last. But an encouragement to all of you who are still single out there, it is worth it to wait for God to bring the right guy. Jack is an amazing man. And um, I couldn't have imagined anyone better than he is. And thankfully, I wasn't in charge. God was. So God is good and faithful and long-suffering with us despite our stubbornness and sin. Amen? (laughs) Um, But as we embark on this new semester of learning about God, I hope God's compassion and faithfulness and long-suffering is a theme that will keep coming up. And I know it will. Um, as we study the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. This morning we get the privilege of meeting with God, of standing, as Moses said, on holy ground. Every time we open his word, we stand on holy ground. His word is his sweet love letter to us. It's his powerful breath. So as I was thinking about what to focus on this morning, I first started teaching Old Testament survey about 12 years ago at a local Christian college. And for those of you who are new to studying the Pentateuch, I want to encourage you that this is a rich and deep mine for, that you're entering down. There's so much here. And it's, it's hard for me to even begin to think of summarizing and presenting an overview. But that's what I'm going to attempt to do in the next 37 minutes. But the promise is that you will reap blessings from your time. This is worth it. The hard work, the studying, the figuring out names and numbers and sacrificial system and tabernacle dimensions, it's worth it. You will reap benefits and blessings from your time. This morning, um, because this is our first time back, I'm going to do a little bit of uh, introductory notes about how to read the Pentateuch. What are we actually dealing with when we come to these first five books of the Old Testament? 
I'm going to do that briefly, and then I'm going to summarize, again, very briefly, a few sentences worth of each of the books that we're going to look through this semester. And then I'll get to dive in into about four important key events. That's all I could fit in. <laughs> There's more. Uh, we could spend all semester on this, which you will be doing. But t- this morning, specializing, focusing on about four. So we'll see if we can get all of that in, in 35 minutes. So we want to ask the question, what is the Pentateuch? This is review, uh, first five books of the Old Testament. And when we study a new book of the Bible, and this is the case whether it's the Pentateuch or any book of the Bible, we want to ask, what is the genre? This is getting a little bit academic. Bear with me. What is the genre of this book? It's important. And for those of you that were English majors or have studied literature of any type, you know that genre is important. You approach different genres of literature differently. Genre just means type. So, for instance, you read fiction differently than you read biography. You read a textbook differently than you read fun pleasure books. The same is true when you come to the Bible. Each book of the Bible has a genre, and you you want to approach it differently and approach it with knowledge. When we come to the Pentateuch, I was going to ask if anyone knows what genre it is. I already put it up there for you. Historical narrative is the genre of the Pentateuch. Um, And again, this is maybe a review for some of you, but narrative is the most prominent genre in the Old Testament. So majority of the Old Testament is narrative. This genre narrates and illustrates divine truth grafted onto history. I read that one time and I think it's a really, really great summary of, of Old Testament narrative. It's divine truth grafted onto history. Old Testament narrative is structured around themes. So it's not always necessarily chronologically arranged. And that's going to be important even today. I'll bring that up. So it doesn't necessarily work in the same way that we think of a history textbook. You start America, 1776. The next chapter is about 1789. Then you go to 1800. You you do it chronologically. The Old Testament narrative, the way that the genre works, it doesn't always work that way. And that's going to be important for you as you continue through the semester. You'll see that. This type of narrative that we have in the Old Testament is unique. It's not like reading a history textbook. Why? What are some of its characteristics? We're going to go over them briefly. Number one, it's revelatory history. Revelatory history. What do I mean by that? I mean, it reveals God. This history is different than any old normal history, and I love history, um, because it reveals who God is from Genesis through Deuteronomy. I mean, the whole Bible does that, but specifically, Old Testament narrative is meant to reveal God. Go ahead and turn with me to Exodus 6, verse 2, and you're going to need your Bibles because (laughs) I'm going to be reading a lot and and jumping back and forth, so... um, Most of the references are in the PowerPoint, so if you can't um, flip around as quickly as I'm speaking, you can at least jot it down for later. But turn to Exodus 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. That phrase, I didn't make myself known. He says, but now you're going to know. I'm going to reveal myself. So that phrase, I didn't make myself known, or 
I will make myself known, appears all throughout Exodus. Keep your eye out for it as you go forward into Exodus. So God revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob last semester, if you remember the covenants that he established. Well, now in Exodus, he says to Moses, I'm actually going to reveal more about myself that they didn't know. This is new information about God. It's further revelation about God. And as you go through specifically the account of the plagues, you're going to see over and over again, God says, I'm doing this so that Pharaoh will know who I am. Or even the Israelites will know who I am. He's revealing himself. And that's why it's okay, which I'm going to do today, (laughs) to read these books in light of later revelation about God. Because the Bible is progressively revelatory. It means God gradually reveals himself more and more and more as time goes on throughout history. So by the time we get to the New Testament, there's an explosion of what we can know about God. So that's a very, very important key point about the nature of Old Testament narrative is that it's progressive. It's revelatory history about who God is. God is a major, if not the major actor in these books. So they're often narrated from God's point of view, and you'll, you'll see this. You'll see God narrating the events, like the thing that Saul did was not acceptable in God's eyes. We're finding out what God is thinking about these characters. That's not normal for history. Normally, we don't get to know what God's thinking or what God, his analysis of, of people. But in Old Testament narrative, we do because God is wanting to make himself known. Okay, second thing. It's salvation history. It's salvation history. This is unique, different from other historical narratives. Think back to Genesis 3.15. We studied that probably months ago at this point. What was Genesis 3.15? It was God's promise to Adam and Eve after they sinned that he would send someone who would crush the head of the serpent. That's the first, what's called the first gospel. Theologians call it the first gospels. It's God's first expression of saying, you've sinned, but I'm not going to utterly obliterate you from earth. I'm actually going to send someone who's going to crush Satan's head. At that point, all we know that someone is coming. We don't really know anything else about him. Now, what happens is that gets more and more clear as time goes on. So that by the time, again, the New Testament comes, we know he's supposed to be from Nazareth. We know that he's going to reign. We know that he's God's anointed. But that promise is there in Genesis 3.15. And it's a promise of salvation. Turn with me to Genesis 17. And I know this is review, but it's, it's been Christmas. <laughs> so it's been New Year's. So we're going to just spend a few minutes on this. Genesis 17.1, if you might remember, this is one of the times that God appears to Abraham and makes promises to Abraham. You remember some of the promises made to Abraham, that he would be given land, that he'd be given descendants, that he'd be giving, that he'd be a blessing to the nations. Well, here in Genesis 17, this is as an example of God's promise becoming more and more clear throughout the Bible. Look at this. Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham, Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Incidentally, remember when God said to Moses, I only appeared as God Almighty to Abraham. See, he's calling himself, I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abraham 
Abram fell on his face. This is a part of the Abrahamic covenant that's going to be important for us this morning. This command to walk before me and be holy. God made this command to Abraham back in Genesis 17, verse 1. Now, flip forward to Exodus 6. Exodus 6, 6 through 7. God is speaking to Moses and he says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. God is further expanding his promise that he made to Abraham. To Abraham, he says, I'm going to be the Lord your God. You're going to be my people, Abraham. I'm going to make you into a nation. Walk before me and be holy. Here it is again. It comes up in Exodus 6, verse 7. Now, flip, flip forward. Keep, keep flipping forward to Jeremiah. This is crazy. I'll read it to you. So if you don't, if you don't get there in time, I'll read it to you. I'm trying to show you how God's plan progresses throughout the Bible, how he's, he's, he's the same God, but he's revealing himself more and more about salvation. 24, Jeremiah 24, verse 7. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Okay, flip forward a few pages over to Ezekiel 11. This is where our fingers get nimble. Ezekiel eleven, nineteen through 20. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes, keep my rules and obey them. And guess what? They shall be my people. I will be their God. It's the same thing. It's the same thing happening. Okay, then finally... If we had more time, we could spend the whole semester going through this. But turn to Revelation 21. <laughs> Revelation 21. Where does this all culminate? And I heard a loud voice, verse 3, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Do you see that? train of thought starting in Genesis, threading all the way through to Revelation, culminating in Revelation. So what you get to do this semester is study a little portion of that, of that seed of promise of salvation, threading through God's interaction with his people. The account of Exodus through Deuteronomy is an unfolding of God's promises. It shows God's purpose in history. It's always been his goal to choose a people, to dwell with them, to be their God, and for them to be his people, for them to walk before him in holiness. Pastor John mentioned that briefly on Sunday. What does it mean to walk before God? It means loving him, (laughs) obeying his commands. And that's exactly what God has called his people to do, all the way back from Genesis, in the beginning of Genesis. So these books are not simply a history of a random nation or random people. It's a history of a relationship. 
Now, it is a history of a nation as well, so I'm not downplaying that. But what I want you to understand is that it's a history of a relationship. So read the text with an eye to God's covenant relationship with his people. It's always toward promise fulfillment. Now, salvation history is also selective history. It leaves a lot of things out on purpose. So we don't know all the details. And that's always been the case. Even when you think about the Gospel of John, what does he say? If I wrote everything that Jesus did, there, are, there aren't even enough books in the universe to contain the stories of everything that he did. So what that means is there are no superfluous details. The details that are included are there for a reason. So we might get bogged down in them and be like, why are you describing this tabernacle and the dimensions and what? They're there on purpose. So part of our task is to figure that out. (laughs) Why are they there? Don't press them too far. So don't major on the details, but also don't overlook them. Okay, third, what kind of history is this? It's didactic history, didactic history, basically meaning history that's meant to teach us something. That's what that word means. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. How do I know this? Well, God's word tells me so. (laughs) Um, So turn to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and they're messing up big time in Corinth. And he's like, I don't even know what to do with you people. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the Israelites. How am I going to talk about them? I'm going to tell you, don't be like them. And he says, verse 1, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, interestingly enough, he calls the Israelites, our fathers were under the cloud. Now I'll pass through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. What? We don't have time to go into what he's meaning there. We'll talk about it a little bit later. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness, verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So we know directly from Paul's mouth that the reason these stories are included in God's word is to show us what to do and what not to do. That's very instructive as we embark on this path of delving even deeper into the Pentateuch. So two questions to ask when you're reading. Number one, and these are from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is kind of what I studied uh, for my PhD, but it's a group of questions and answers that the Puritans wrote trying to help new believers figure out what the Bible was. And they said, hey, when you come to the Bible and you don't understand what's going on, ask yourself two things about the text. What does it tell me to believe about God? What does this text tell me to believe about God? How can I know more about God from this text? That's the first question. The second is, what duty does God require of me from this text? That's an old school Puritan language. But basically, what is it telling me to do? (laughs) How can I obey God better after reading this text? I think those are helpful two questions to keep in mind as you proceed on this study. Okay, last for this part. What is the Pentateuch? It's our history. These men and women that we're going to study stand in the line that we stand. It's our own legacy. Believing and trusting in God and his word, which is the very definition of faith, began in the garden. So these are accounts of our family deeds. It's like a journal entry, not like a history textbook. Think about how Paul talks about it. He says, our fathers went through the wilderness, went through um, the the desert. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. I want to show you what this looks like. So Hebrews 11, great chapter of faith. 
when the author to the letter wants to describe faith, what does he do? He goes to the Old Testament and shows you examples of it. Look at um, verse 26 of Hebrews 11. And this is a great chapter to read in your quiet time, kind of in parallel with the stories in the Pentateuch, because he's basically going through them um, for us. But verse 26, talking about Moses, he says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What? (laughs) Moses somehow, I don't know how this works, but Moses considered the reproach of Christ better than being a prince of Pharaoh, meaning he wanted to identify with God's people, become basically a slave, rather than being a prince in Egypt. That was his reward. So it's, it is our history. Now, it is also Israelite history. It's Jewish history. But there is a sense that we can claim the heritage that M- Moses was looking for toward Christ, forward to Christ, towards the Messiah. We're looking back on the Messiah and his work. Okay? If we were in class, I'd ask questions and discussion, but we're going to keep going. Um, Let's let's keep moving. Number two, how, how are we supposed to read historical narrative? And these are just a few tips that I've gathered throughout the years. Hopefully they're helpful. One important thing is to avoid spiritualizing or moralizing the story. So when you read, for instance, about David and Goliath, who's not in the Pentateuch, but that's an example. David and Goliath is not about how you conquer the Goliaths in your life. That's not why that story is included in the narrative. The story is included in the narrative for a number of reasons, one of which is to show how the promise in Genesis three fifteen is being played out. God's promise to send a seed. Who is the father of that seed? David. So David's whole life is showing how that promise is being fulfilled. And there's going to be a lot of stories that you might be tempted to be like, oh, where am I in this story? That's not really the point. It's not necessarily for you to find yourself in the story. So um, there are themes that you can, you can trace. For instance, God preserving his Messiah. Practice close reading. And these are just general tips. Read slowly, deliberatively, annotate keywords, phrases, questions, and usual details. Look for patterns. Again, the details are important. They're there for a reason. The author put them there for a reason. Moses put them there for a reason. Analyze the author's point of view. Do a plot analysis. Figure out what's happening in the beginning, middle, end. Character analysis. That's awesome, especially if you choose someone like Moses. And if you have extra time, you can sit down in the book of Exodus and just think through, how does Moses change throughout this story? Who is he in the beginning? How does he end up in the end? Think through that type of thing. Now, I know there's homework that goes along, so maybe get the homework done, and then that's good. But if you have more time, maybe on a Sunday afternoon, choose a character and just think about his or her life, um, and it, you will reap benefits from that. Okay, so let's dive into these books. I wish I could entertain questions. You can discuss those things in discussion. But um, overview of key themes. Here's a brief summary of the books. And um, Genesis I've already mentioned in a few examples. But starting from Exodus through Deuteronomy. Basically, we have two accounts of narratives. So beginning in Exodus, 
We have the story, it picks up exactly from Genesis. So there's no time separation between Genesis and Exodus. So it may be beneficial for you to review the last few chapters of Genesis as you embark into Exodus, because they go right together. And then it's confusing, because in our Bibles, it goes Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Leviticus is in between Exodus and Numbers, right, in our Bibles. Okay, yes, but... <laughs> the narrative actually doesn't stop between Exodus and Numbers. So if you want more of a chronological understanding of what's happening, Exodus ends and then Numbers picks up the story of what was happening. And what we have with Leviticus and Deuteronomy are additional information kind of inserted. So Leviticus is actually a series of speeches spoken by God to Moses given most likely while they're at Mount Sinai. So they, go to, they get to Mount Sinai, they're given the law, the Ten Commandments, and then they're given, Moses receives Leviticus from God. Deuteronomy are primarily two speeches by Moses given at the plains of Moab right before they go in to conquer the land of Canaan. So hopefully that's helpful for you to think about a structure of these next four books. The narrative story starts in Exodus and then continues on through Numbers, and then Leviticus and Deuteronomy kind of pile on speech information um, that give further information about what's going on in, as the Israelites travel. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay, good. So for the rest of our time, I want to go over four important events in these books, and it was really hard to narrow them down, but this is where we are. Moses, the plagues in Passover. Second, deliverance from Egypt, years of wandering. Third, the ten words of the covenant. Fourth, the tabernacle and sacrifices. And as I just kind of mentioned, see the ten words of the covenant Given at Sinai, they're actually repeated again in Deuteronomy. So you can actually find two different accounts of what happened at Sinai because Deuteronomy is a repetition of what, what, what happened. It's a speech that Moses gave. So for many of us, these are familiar stories. I know not for everyone, but for many of us, when you look at these four, you're like, okay, I've taught Sunday school. I've been in Sunday school. I have kids. I know these stories. But so this morning, I, I want to go over them, but I also want to spend some time highlighting their significance in light of the points I made earlier about the fact that this is salvation history. These are part of our salvation history, and we learn more about them in the New Testament. So I'm going to actually be drawing some New Testament implications of these four points, and hopefully that'll provide a little bit of a a handle around which to grasp them. So let's start with Moses, the plagues, and Passover. So Exodus 1, Israel is in Egypt. Exodus 2, Moses' birth, the story um, of the Israelites expanding and becoming more and more powerful, and the Pharaoh gets scared, and he tells the midwives to basically kill any male child that's born to try to have population growth. They don't. Um, and so the Israelites keep growing um, and becoming more powerful. He flees to Midian, Moses, because we know he murders someone. You'll get into this, the details of this um, as, as you continue on in studying. But 
Look at chapter 2, verse 24. It says, God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant. You'll see this coming up where God remembers his covenant. It's not like he's forgotten it, but he takes a special eye to his covenant. Now, if you remember Genesis, God actually told Abraham that his people would be in Egypt for 430 years. So this isn't like God, oh, forgot they're in Egypt. He actually said, this is going to happen. And guess what? I'm going to deliver them. And I'm going to deliver them so much so that they come out with possessions that are far greater than the Egyptians. They plunder the Egyptians. That's where that phrase comes from. So God remembers his covenant. He actually, in a sense, well, in a very big sense, he's orchestrating Moses's actions. So the fact that Moses committed murder and fled, God uses that because he meets with Moses, chapter 3, at the burning bush, and he commissions Moses to go back to the Israelites and tell them God's going to come and he's going to save you. Significantly here, this is where God reveals his covenant name to Moses. So he says, I am that I am. It gives me goosebumps. It's his, it's Yahweh. And I don't know if any of you have the Legacy Standard Bible um, that now uses the word Yahweh instead of capital L-O-R-D. It's God's covenant name. Anytime you see that in the text, it's the name that he revealed to Moses. He promised that he would be with his people. He would deliver them. And we actually know um, in John chapter 8 at the end, when Jesus is with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and he says, who, they say, who are you? Are you the son of David? And he says, I am who I am. And he's going back to this phrase specifically. And they're like, they're stunned. And they immediately pick up stones to stone him because they know exactly what he's saying. He's saying, I'm Yahweh. I'm the one that appeared to Moses. And they're like, you can't be. How is that? So this is a very significant event in chapter 3. Uh, yeah, chapter three. So here also God promises that he will rescue his people. They will come out with more possessions than they had. This refers back to Genesis fifteen fourteen, the promise that he made to Abraham. Moses goes uh, without some complaining um, and fussing, which is just a little interesting when you think about God commissioning him and he says, what? I can't do it. I'm too scared. But he goes back and then we have the 10 plagues from Exodus 7 through 11. The Nile turns to blood. There's frog infestation. There's gnat infestation. The land is basically destroyed as God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And that's something you'll probably talk about in discussion groups. What does that mean? God hardens Pharaoh's heart to not let his people go. Why? So that his glory is put on display. He shows all of Egypt how powerful he is. The last plague is the death of the firstborn. And this is where um, Passover comes. So the Israelites are spared from the last plague in chapter 11. How are they to be spared? A lamb is sacrificed. And the blood of the lamb is put over their doors so that the angel of the Lord, the destroyer, it's called the destroyer, will pass over their doors and will not come in and kill their firstborn. So Passover, it becomes an ordinance that's to be celebrated every year by the Israelites. And even today, Jews celebrate Passover every year. It's a very, very important event. 
As they celebrate, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to remember the horrors and the bitterness of their slavery, slavery in Egypt. Think about their slavery. It's backbreaking work with no hope of it ever stopping. We get a little glimpse of it in Exodus 6, verse 9. You don't have to turn there. But when Moses first came to the Israelites to tell them, the Lord's going to save you, it says they didn't listen to him because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. This was, this was a horrible life that they lived in slavery. And then they go through the plagues. Now, the Israelites weren't spared from all of the plagues. They actually experienced them. So the frog infestation, can you imagine? The whole land is filled with frogs in your house. And then when the frogs die down, they gather them into piles and burn them. And it, the text says, this is a little detail, so that the whole land smelled putrid with burning frogs. Think about that. The Israelites went through these plagues. So what is Passover? It's a remembrance of their deliverance from the plagues, from the bitterness of slavery. Every year they were to remember. Every year they were to teach their children so that their children would remember too. Now, why do you think, and as you read the account, Moses, the author, goes through details about these plagues. I was just rereading it, and I was struck again um, how he describes even the darkness of the land. He says, it was so dark, it was so thick you could feel it. That's amazing. That's terrifying. Think about that. That's terrifying. So why do you think the author wants you to feel the Israelites' despair? Well, certainly he wants you to know what the Israelites were going through, but I think there's more going on here. What is that? Well, turn to chapter 12. What type of lamb were they supposed to sacrifice? Chapter 12, verse 5. Yeah, a a lamb without blemish, a spotless lamb. And you're probably going to know, I see some heads nodding. You know where I'm going with this. this. It's easy to overlook that little detail, but it's a really important detail. Why? John 1, 29 When John the Baptist sees Jesus, what does he say? The first thing he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And at 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul explicitly says, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. So Passover, as you read about Passover, think about the significance of it for us. Think about the last time Passover was celebrated for God's people. When was it? The night before Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread, took wine, and celebrated. It was for Passover that they were gathered. And it's significant that it happened the night before he was betrayed because it's his blood that becomes our salvation from our sin, from our slavery, from the horrors and bitterness of our destruction. So these stories, when Paul says they're examples for us, he's not just saying that lightly. They actually are. So as you read through the plagues, read about their slavery, think about the horrors of what sin has done in our lives and think about how Christ, the Passover lamb, has saved us from those sins. And what that should do is next time we celebrate communion together, it makes it a really serious and celebratory time after having studied Exodus in a way that it maybe wasn't before. 
because we now know 1 Peter 1.19, we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, exactly how Moses describes the Passover lamb. Okay, second theme, deliverance from Egypt and years of wandering. After the last plague, Pharaoh's devastated. He begs the Israelites to leave, please. His son is killed and he wants them to leave. So they depart from their departure from Egypt to their arrival on the edge of Canaan, the promised land, is about 40 years, one generation. During that time, there's tensions, there's hard-heartedness. And I want to spend just a few minutes um, giving examples of that. Turn to Numbers. Numbers chapter 11. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Flip forward to chapter 14, Numbers 14, 1 through 4. All the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. The people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? So, so much hard-heartedness, complaining. And I have more examples. You'll see it through numbers that that's a theme that's going to come up. Numbers 21, what does the Lord do? He sends fiery serpents in the midst, and thousands of them are destroyed because of their hard-heartedness. Now, turn back again quickly to 1 Corinthians 10. Again, what's going on here? 1 Corinthians 10, Paul uses this. Verse 7, don't be idolaters as some of them were, as it was written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We, verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Whoa. <laughs> Now these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. So Paul uses that example of them being destroyed by serpents to tell us, don't grumble against Christ because look what happened. And Christ, and specifically, and this, you don't have to turn here, but... Um, I just recently saw this, Jude chapter 5. Jude's even more explicit. Um, Jude verse 5, sorry. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. (laughs) Jesus destroyed those who didn't believe. I wouldn't normally feel comfortable saying that until I read it in Jude. Um, So... And Paul uses that example as a very serious warning to the church to say, watch out. Where's your heart? Don't be like the Israelites who didn't believe. We're going to keep going. The 10 words of the covenant. Exodus 20, again repeated in Deuteronomy 5. I am the Lord your God. Turn Turn to Exodus 20. That's how it starts, the 10 commandments. I am the Lord your God. Who has a legacy Bible, legacy standard Bible, can see what type of Lord 
Is it there? It's Yahweh, right? I sure hope so. Pretty sure that that's what it says. I'm Yahweh, your God. So what does God do when he talks about the Ten Commandments? He first reminds the Israelites that he's their covenant-keeping God. He reminds them, I chose you. You're not special. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 11, God says, I chose you Israelites, not because you're mighty, not because you're attractive, but because of the love that I set on you. I have chosen you to be my people. I am your God. He's Yahweh. He's the God of the covenant. And what does he say? I have chosen you and now walk before me and be holy. It's exactly what he said to Abraham shown in more detail here in Exodus. How do we know how to walk before God and be holy? He gives us a law. That's how you know. If you don't have a law, you don't know how to keep the law. You don't know whether you're doing what's right or wrong. That's why laws are good in a lot of cases. God shows us how to be holy. So these laws show us one through four, our duty to God, five through 10, our duty to others. You must be holy as I am holy. That's what God expects. And again, if we were to go to the New Testament, and I won't have you turn there, but what does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 48? He's talking about the law and the Pharisees and Sadducees come to him and they say, well, you know, it used to be that, you know, you can't commit murder, you can't commit adultery, and Jesus actually strengthens the law. He says, yes, it was written you can't commit adultery, but I tell you, if you look at someone with lust, you've committed adultery. He strengthens the law. And he says, he culminates it in chapter 5, verse 48 of Matthew. If you want to come before God, you must be perfect as God is perfect. You must be holy as God is holy. God's standard of holiness doesn't change between the Old Testament and the New Testament. What does change is Christ's coming. And he takes on the law perfectly on our behalf. So think of that as you study the law. Think of that as you study the Ten Commandments, the fact that Christ has come, he's kept the law on our behalf and for our sake. Last thing, and I'll do it in two minutes because I want to let you out. The tabernacle and the sacrifices. From the tent of meeting to the tabernacle to ultimately the temple. Tabernacle is the, God, is the place where God comes to meet with his people. It's where he comes to dwell. God, this is Leviticus Um, There's a lot in Leviticus about it, but chapter 16, God appears in the cloud over the atonement cover and no one, not even the high priest was permitted to approach God, not even Aaron, who God chose to be the high priest. God allowed it to happen one day of the year that someone could come before him. The high priest could come on the day of atonement only by first sprinkling the blood of seven bulls sorry, the blood of a bull seven times on the altar before he could come into God's presence and only with having performed a sacrifice for his sin first. So as we read through Leviticus with all of the details, you have to ask, why are there all these details? What's the elaborate description going on here of, of this whole system? And remember, they're there for a reason. They're important. What we know is that the Old Testament sacrificial system was put in place using Christ's work as the model. Usually we think it's the other way around, that what Christ did was a model of the Old Testament system. It's not actually true. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us the Old Testament sacrificial system was set up to teach the people about the Messiah. 
So now, as we know about the Messiah's work, we get to read all of these details and think about Christ. We know him in a way that they didn't know him. But the details are set up to show his sacrifice for us. Hebrews 9 talks about that. If you want to jot that down. How different is what, what the author to the Hebrews says, how different is the great high priest Christ? He doesn't have to offer sacrifice day after day, year after year, once for all perfect sacrifice. He bought his people with the price of his blood. He redeemed them with his death. All right, I must close. Our time is, time is short. But the weeks ahead, going through the Pentateuch, revel in the details Revel in the details. They're important. Study the people, the places. Read slowly, read carefully. And as you do, I promise, you'll gradually behold the face of God more clearly and more profoundly. You'll learn of God's endless compassion, that he's slow to anger, that he's rich in love and loving kindness. As you celebrate the Lord's Supper, remember your redemption from slavery, from the slavery of sin. As you remember your redemption, your obedience to the law turns from rigid legalism to a grateful offering back to the one who himself, Christ, became the once for all sacrifice. He takes the animal that we would have needed to bring as a sacrifice for ourselves from our hands. And what does he do? In its place, he fills our lips with songs of thankfulness. That's what Hebrews 13 says. We don't have to offer sacrifices, but now what do we do? Offer sacrifice of praise when we come to worship. As he, Emmanuel... Jesus' name, God with us, leads us into the very holy of holies. Clothed in his righteousness, we with unveiled faces get to behold the glory of the Lord. That's it. We have to end there. (laughs) Let me just pray real quick. Lord, we just thank you for this time. Thank you for these women and the encouragement that they are to me and to one another. Lord, I pray that you would bless the study of your holy, powerful word. Help us to learn more about you through our time together. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.